When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. On Commons People this week, how do we improve safety for women? What I right? would dance with the devil to make women and children safer. This is the reason I got involved in politics. Is Boris Johnson the right man for the job? I'm not the type of person, I think it's pretty well known, to sort of sit back and accept, um, you know, really quite disparaging and derogatory remarks. And how will the first Red Wall by-election play out? We've just got to go to Hartlepool and talk about the things that the people in Hartlepool care about. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth's here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel. And we've got Labour's Shadow Domestic Violence Minister, Jess Phillips. Hi Arj. Hi Jess. Well- welcome. welcome back. Oh thanks. It's nice to be here. Good. Well, it's been a highly significant week in the battle to improve women's safety after the killing of Sarah Everard propelled the issue up the political agenda. Uh, The week began with ugly scenes of the Metropolitan Police officers grabbing women, holding them down and leading them away by handcuffs for attending a vigil in Everard's memory during lockdown. Despite the troubling images, Met Police Commissioner Cressida Dick looks likely to hold on to a job and government legislation to crack down on protest rights passed its first vote in the Commons. But there was better news later in the week as ministers bowed to pressure and announced that police forces in England and Wales would be asked from this autumn to record crimes caused by hostility based on sex or gender. Meanwhile, questions have been raised about Boris Johnson's suitability to lead a drive to improve women's safety. Let's hear Pretty Patel being challenged by Robert Peston on some of the PM's past comments. If one of your male colleagues said about you that the best way to manage you is just to pat you on the bottom and send you on your way what would you say to that male colleague well i i I would not i would not accept that at all um it's fair to say that i would say to my colleague um if that ever happened that that is just simply unacceptable um we've just had you know we've just spoken about treating each other with respect that is simply not respectful it is it's appalling. So appalling. I, 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 probably ought, I probably ought to tell you that that is what the Prime Minister said when he left his job as editor of The Spectator about his female boss, Kimberly Quinn. So do you want to tell the Prime Minister now that he shouldn't well, have said that? I, I mean, I, I wouldn't hesitate. And believe uh, me- Paul, how do you think the government's dealt with the aftermath of Sarah Everard's killing? Well, I think the most interesting thing was in PMQs, the, the tone that was set by both leaders to start off with certainly sounded like both of them wanted to um, have a bit of unity at long last on this and put aside party politics um, and and recognise the moment. I mean, obviously, you know, um, 
uh, there's got to be some kind of massive change in the wake of what the outpouring of the reaction that's happened in the wake of Sarah Everard's killing. But as as Jess and everyone else will tell you, you know, why should it take another tragic murder to to force political change? But the fact is that there was a sort of new tone in PMQs. Now, you might say that was just might have been skin deep, but certainly was there. Both leaders saying they wanted to work together. You can't strip the politics out of this. Obviously, you can't ever, uh, because, you know, politics is all about doing things and different priorities and whether or not people are have been doing the right thing over several years and, and have they now got the right strategy in place. So it is still political and there, there will be differences. But I thought that's what struck me. It was actually finally there was a consensus that that the something should be done approach to this actually really might mean things are going to be done. The thing is that there, there's lots and lots of things um, that are already ongoing. Um, uh, but, you know, the pace of change has been so, you know, snail-like that I think that people are saying that the real legacy for, for Sarah Everard could be if somehow, uh, even if one more murder of one more woman is prevented from all of this policy change, then that would be fantastic. But in, in terms of the detail, I mean, what struck me as well was this week, it seemed as though the government realised how enormous this moment was. You know, reopening that um, survey for women and girls, they've got 78,000 responses since they reopened it uh, on Friday. That just underlines just how um, behind the curve politicians have been on the whole, I think, and particularly the government, that there was this massive outpouring. People wanted to have their say and they got more of it. Um, the, a couple of changes, mini concessions this week in, in the Lords, which was interesting. You know, Jan Royal forcing the government to look again at um, a national stalking register, which is woefully overdue and, and I was struck during that debate by three women who spoke Jan Royal who, who recounted the experience of several women and their families who suffered from the stalking nightmare there was Sal Brinton the Lib Dem who had personal experience of a, th- a, a three-year campaign of stalking by her Tory opponent um, in, a, in a general election um, and who eventually, after, despite that three-year campaign, he was just given an 11-month suspended sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had Gabby Burton, David Cameron's former press secretary, who was recalling again how her 18-year-old cousin was murdered by a stalker. And it was incredibly moving. Three women in succession in the Lords talking very personally about what happened. And and at the end of it, finally, there was some kind of incremental change, which is the government saying, yeah, well, we're going to look at this uh, stalker's register. And then yesterday we had this, as you said, as you know, again, another concession about police, um, all police being required from the autumn to record crimes that have been motivated by hatred of women. So there's been little bits of change. I mean, the bigger picture is obviously still, you've got to say, the fact that that, you know, the prosecution rate for rape is still woefully tiny uh, and ultimately we might have to come back to the sheer politics of the way things like the criminal justice system has been the Cinderella service the Ministry of Justice has always been the department whenever we've done budgets whenever we've done spending reviews and you look at the figures you see the cash going to health the cash going to education and um, we always look well who's going to be the big loser for the last 10 years we've done the same calculation it's always the same two departments ministry of justice and councils and they're the sort of stealth cuts that maybe finally uh, people are waking up mm-hmm. to jess I, I believe you're keen on a cross-party approach but I do, am. You think the, do you think the pm's the right man to lead that job or do you like to see 
maybe Priti Patel or someone else leading on. I very much doubt that the Prime Minister will do anything more than, like, you know, hold a meeting. I don't, you know, and, and to be fair to him, I don't um, expect much more of him directly. Um, I'm not, do you know what? I, you know, I would absolutely love to sit here and completely and utterly excoriate the Prime Minister for every sexist or even racist thing that he's said in the past. But, you know, it doesn't get me anywhere. Um, and, um I think that Priti Patel, uh, uh, after Pestanaster about it yesterday, you know, it's, it's pretty shaming enough for that to sort of draw a line for it for me. The only way he can he can come back from that is with actual action, not just more words. I don't need more words. I need it to, and I can already feel it becoming less important as the week has gone on. Um, I can already feel them being like, okay, right, we've given them a couple of things. I think we've probably got through this heads down. Now we'll just put out this, uh, the rate review and the strategy and it will just say things like everybody's got to work better together. Uh, I, and I'm not going to tolerate it because I've been on this treadmill for nearly two decades and something has to change fundamentally. And they've got to see this for the fundamentals that it is. Because the, what the, the Prime Minister went away and came back with, they had a little meeting, which I offered to go to. Um, and in a cross-party affair, nobody has been in touch with me from the Home Office or um, from, the, from the Prime Minister's office. And that was not the case under Theresa May. She would always, when I was like, I'll help, I would always get some form of a call. Um, but nobody's been in touch with me at all. Uh, but um, I think that's probably because they won't, don't know how to handle me, if the truth be told. They'll, they'll be like, oh, gosh, what are we going to... We'll end up giving her everything or nothing, and either way, she'll... <laughs> and so I think there's probably a, a bit of that about it. You know, I can't, I can't bear the just being more words about it. And when the Prime Minister got that little meeting together the other day, because they had to sort of quickly rush something out the door... I mean, it was the equivalent of monkey tennis, what came out of that meeting. I, I reckon they just had some words in two separate bowls and they were just like, oh, somebody's like like picked out the one that says CCTV and somebody else has picked out the one that says undercover police officers and bars. And literally everybody who's ever worked in this area or has any expertise all went, what? I, I, I have such a deep, like, misunderstanding about what the undercover police officers in bars is meant to do i've heard two different versions so they came up with this idea that they're going to put more undercover police officers in bars who will then if they see persistent i don't know pestering it's none of this is against the law of course you can harass people in the public realm there's no law against the street harassment so if they see this an identifiable crime that doesn't exist they're going to intervene no, they're not going to intervene because they're undercover and they would blow their cover. Sorry. It's confusing. They're going to go and find a uniformed police officer because, as everybody knows, in every city centre, thousands of them milling about. I mean, you can't swing a cap for hitting a uniformed police officer. There's literally 20,000 fewer than there used to be. But thank thankfully, there's still one on every, you know, every five yards. So then they're going to go and tell a uniformed police officer who will then go and intervene. For a start off, why can't a woman just go and tell a uniformed police officer and be listened to? I don't understand why I need somebody you know sort of like doing a little secret code into his into into his shoulder to 
to tell a police officer. The second thing is, is that then somebody said to me, oh, well, actually, it's not that. It's what they're going to do. It's been really poorly reported, which fair enough, I could understand that might happen. Actually, what it's going to do is they're going to really, they're going to send in undercover units to areas, nighttime economy, bars and things that have really high rates where people have already, uh, high rates of assault and they think that there are prolific offenders there. And I just said, can I just ask why that hasn't happened already? Uh, and why do those places still have their licenses? So it, it takes the murder of a woman, which was one of many that week. It takes her murder for prolific offenders and hotspots to be targeted by police where violence against women and girls was known to be happening. I'm at a total loss, is all I can say, with what they came up with. And that's why I would like to extend a hand of expertise. Is, is that a way of getting at it, actually, Jess? It's an interesting point you raised there. Should should premises maybe um, have their licences sort of under threat if, if there's a lot of crime happening at that bar or club? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, um, actually... The Equality Act already, I think, um, under the Equality Act, although, you know, most people aren't going to instigate this. Uh, if you report it to the proprietor, they have a responsibility to do something. That's why lots of bars have security. So they have a responsibility to clear it out. And if they don't and, and they're like, oh, you know, I used to work in bars and there was an attitude that was, oh, you know, he's a regular doesn't matter that he fills your ass when you're walking past, you know, uh, oh, he's a good customer. You get a lot of that. Um, but what we after the me too movement lots of um lots of us campaigned in fact the women and equality select committee uh, wrote a report and we re we uh recommended to the government that they put in a duty on employers to prevent um and so that if they didn't hadn't acted to prevent and somebody was abused who was one of their employees they would be liable as an employee obviously what do you think the government did nothing <laughs> they did nothing uh they did nothing about the last moment that we had no piece of legislation has changed to make women any safer at work from sexual harassment so i really hope that this isn't the case this time so we'll see yeah uh, since we're on it uh, rachel the government has 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 made moves this week but um what other measures have been called for and what could be effective we've kind of talked about it a bit there yeah i think um we covered earlier this week that um the the police are now going to start recording um uh, misogyny as as a hate crime and i think sort of moves toward that could be one of the one of the most significant things that we see because you know if you want to talk about perhaps how you would go about closing a premises down if the harassment would, would deemed to be aggravated by misogyny if we got to that point where it became law then that could potentially have a, a wider impact but in terms of other things that have been suggested this week um maria miller has called for sort of an entirely separate bill separate to domestic violence separate to the um policing police and crime bill to deal with like sex harassment and violence against women and girls um Sort of the risk of sounding sort of ridiculously optimistic. One of the things that sort of struck me this week is that there is a sort of growing consensus about this being just about our culture more generally, and about whether culture is um, misogynistic. Um, you know, I think I think in the past we've always kind of uh, separated it out as you know, oh, domestic domestic abuse was about you know something that happened in the home, and that was entirely separate to misogyny and you know things that happen in schools are, are about you know how about education you know these are it's it, they're all all of these strands I think are sort of slowly coming together yeah um and I think 
this is one of the reasons why Boris Johnson will continue to be under pressure for the things that he said in the past. You know, children of single mothers are ill-raised, illegitimate, you should, you, should, you should control your woman, or David Cameron's a girly swat. You know, and from a reporter's point of view, um, and Paul and Arjo attest to this, um, uh, Boris Johnson's press secretary, Allegra Stratton, has been under a lot of pressure this week to kind of explain his the Prime Minister's previous comments and to apologise for them. And I think that's just not going to go away for him because he can very easily say in the very sort of polite atmosphere of the House of Commons, oh, you know, we have to do all of this, that and the other to support women. You know, and if, and if we do continue to talk about how we need to change our culture, then the Prime Minister is going to have to acknowledge some of the mistakes that he's made. He should that's just that. do that. He should just acknowledge it. Honestly, it would make it would make it much, much better because I'm not interested in the fact that Boris Johnson... Do you know what? I can't rehabilitate Boris Johnson's sexism. I'm not even going to try. It, it's a massive waste of my time. He has a, a huge majority and the power to massively improve the lives of women in this country so apologize for what you've done and the best way to apologize i say this to my children sorry is just a word sweetheart um changing your behavior and making a change is the thing that will prove to me that you're actually sorry i don't want to hear the word so he could he could tomorrow come out and say we're going to have an end-to-end -end violence against women and girls bill now incidentally we asked for a violence against women and girls bill when the domestic abuse bill was first starting we said you cannot separate the issue of culture and harassment and rape 49% of all rapes happen in a domestic violence setting. You cannot separate out the crimes against women and girls. But the government didn't want to do that. They wanted just to do a domestic abuse bill. And also they, they don't want, they want to de-gender the crime. They want to be like, this isn't about women. Uh, this is about all people. And, and, and I'm afraid to say that's where they're going to miss the mark. That's where his sexism annoys me because it stops action from happening where it needs to happen. He's got to understand this is a structural issue. But if he just came out and said, I said these things and that was terrible and I'm going to learn and how I'm going to do it is I'm going to deliver you a violence against women and girls bill that I'm going to work cross party with, with the women from every single part of this House of Commons to tell us what is needed to be safe. Do you know what? He could have been, he could have been saying all manner of hoo-ha in the past and I wouldn't care. That's what will make the difference. But so just say sorry and crack on with changing it. You know, it's my, view that, it's my view that he just can't, he can't get away with not apologising forever, particularly when, you know, we're going to have... Why would these, you bother to try? Well, we're going to have these press conferences now where um, Allegra Stratton's going to be taking questions from journalists publicly. And this, this will not be the last time that, that we discuss it. And I think um, he, if he continues to, to just refuse to acknowledge it, I think that's going to... A lot of women who watch those press conferences are going to start to be as frustrated as the journalists who repeatedly ask this question. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think on, right. the, on the point of culture, it's interesting that, um, you know, the pandemic has, has sort of um, derailed schools a lot, but last year for the first time ever, we do have compulsory sex and relationship yeah. education in schools now. That's the first time ever. And that brings us back to this point about politics matters because Yvette Cooper was calling for that, you know, in 2011. And 
Michael Gove and Theresa May both dragged their feet on it. And it's only finally now, it's years later, it's finally actually happening in schools. And if you're looking at a long term culture change, it's definitely the case, as with all forms of education, the only way you can break the chains of, of that go through the generations of people copying what their parents do is through the schools. And if you're if you're at home and you see your dad uh, treat your mum in a sexist way or in, even in a violent way, what's that shapes your whole worldview? And what's the what, what's the answer to it? A is one way is obviously through youth groups and and mm-hmm. other groups um, and different kind of mentors. But a key way is the role models in school and the education you get. Yeah. Now, one week, one one hour a week of education isn't going to make a massive difference, but at least it's a start in the conversation at an earlier age about equality and how to treat women. And maybe it would be a good idea if Boris Johnson sat in on a sex and relationship uh, class himself. (laughs) Well, I used to do them. I used to hold consent classes and respect for women. I used to go into schools and do those uh, classes. So I I, I also, in offering to help the Prime Minister, I'm more than happy to uh, run through some of the old materials with him if he wants me to. Um, I'd be more than happy to. Um, But I think you're absolutely right. But although I think that it is that your education seems like it would be the silver bullet and there's still whilst we do have the legislation now which was a cross-party piece of legislation um again maria miller uh sarah champion myself stella rivette um and some people who are no longer in the house actually um worked really hard to make that get through but it still needs the government to step up with regard to resource and uh, standards because they left a loophole in that legislation that allows for head teachers to have latitude much like the loophole that was left in the coronavirus regulations to allow police forces to have latitude and unfortunately all that does is it leaves police forces like the met were and uh, head teachers exposed um, when, you know, as you saw in my constituency last year, uh, you know, people want to protest about what, the, you know, their kids being taught about sex and relationships. Um, so it's, you know, I think the government has quite a long way to go before just resting on the laurels of the, they've put that legislation through. Um, and it can never always just be lip service, these things. You have, to, you have to work on, you know, the detail. And the government loves saying stuff. They, they love legislation as well, like, you know, words written on goat skin rolled up in underneath the House of Commons is their absolutely favourite thing to do in the field of violence against women and girls. How it actually relates to real lives, less good. How welfare interacts, how housing interacts, how local councils, as you said, interact, how courts and police services and the cuts in those interact. That, that there, there is a need for fundamental political bandwidth across the piece to make women more economically advanced in order to be freer from harm. Isn't that Liz Truss's job as the women and women's <laughs> minister in government? And, you know, to kind of bring that together across government. And she wasn't even at this task force meeting on Monday. She's been such a massive disappointment to me, Liz Truss, because when she was the um, Justice Secretary for that fleeting moment they allowed a woman into the job. Um, she she was absolutely pilloried by, and bear in mind, she was following in the very heady footsteps of Chris Grayling, literally the worst man to head up any department ever. Um, and he had done a terrible job in justice. I mean, it's up to, they've spent years having to undo what he did. And she suffered really terribly at the hands of sexism as when she was given that job. People were really sexist about the fact, I, I think that maybe she's not got a law degree, but neither did Chris Grayling, nor does he know anything about boats or ferries or anything in contracts even, it seems. Um, but 
she suffered really and I felt real sorority with her and I used to go over to the Ministry of Justice when she was um, uh, in that role uh, and talk to her specifically around how we improve rape conviction with regard to women's previous sexual history being revealed in court. It's a massive issue where a woman's previous sexual history is used against her to basically call her a slut. And you can't be raped if you're a slut, of course, according to the justice system. Um, and so I used to go over there. She was quite hard line about it, actually. And she was quite fierce. And she had a bit of steel in her about it because of this sexist treatment she'd been she'd received uh, taking on this big role. Um, however, since then, in her role as the Secretary of State for Women and Equalities, I cannot think of a single advancement that Liz Truss has overseen that in the pandemic has been devastating for women's economic advantage, employment and financial security. Devastating. And yet the majority of the work in the pandemic has been done by women. Where the hell is Liz Truss? Why in all of these recovery schemes in the budget is there nothing about care, childcare? Why is there nothing, Liz Truss, about targeted women, women's industrial strategy to get the women who've largely lost their jobs more than men back into work? Where are you, Liz Truss? Do you remember that we exist? Look in the mirror and remember that we exist and try and get out there and improve the productivity of the women of our country. Uh, you know, she'd be like, we want people at work. Well, me too, Liz. Try and help us get there. And she, yeah, hasn't, uh, she hasn't been at a single one of those number 10 press conferences, has she? No, she hasn't. She's, I don't know what she's doing, buying soy sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Jess, uh, before we move on, um, you, you are you're now calling for, for cross-party working on this, but Labour's becoming broad in a bit of controversy this week after claiming in a political ad that rape has been effectively decriminalised by the Tories. Mm -hmm. You think that helped? And did you have sight of that ad before it went out? No, is the answer. I didn't, but I don't... I, I, when do you say, do you think it helped? The reality is the Tories didn't like it. It wasn't said by... Although I have said it many times. I've been saying it for about a year, so I'm stunned that they only got upset about it now. But it was said by Vera Baird, the Independent Victims Commissioner, appointed by the government. Um, not me. She, she is the one who lays that charge. And it's almost impossible to refute that charge because every year... Rape conviction has been dropping under this government every single year. It has been falling, as has domestic abuse prosecution been falling. So more people come forward and fewer people go to prison. So we have an increasing number of victims and fewer people ever being held accountable. So what do you what do, what am I meant to call that? Ninety-eight point five percent of all rapes go unpunished. Does that sound criminal to you? Imagine any other crime type with that statistic that is just, and I'm sorry that it upset them. They don't like it, do they? They absolutely don't like it. I mean, earlier in the week, I think it was Amanda Milling was saying that I was supporting um, supporting uh, child murderers because I wasn't going to vote for the bill, uh, which is absolutely phenomenal. And luckily, anybody who uh, knows me uh, would certainly know that I've done considerably more work uh, in this area than uh, Amanda Milling. Uh, but nonetheless, um, that they don't like it. But I hope they don't like it because I don't like it either. I don't like that rape has been decriminalised. I'm really cross about it. And I hope that they're really, really, really cross about the performance of their 
their government. I hope that they're shocked. I hope it's upset them and I hope that they get pressure from their constituents about it because them being upset isn't as bad as that in this year alone, the amount of rape victims I've spoken to and had to say, I'm sorry, I just, I'm going to tell you we're probably going to get nowhere with this, but let's keep trying. That, that, that's much worse, Amanda Milling. I'm sorry that I've offended you. Well, c- crime is now likely to be a key issue going into the local elections in May, mm-hmm. which now have some added spice after Mike Hill resigned as Labour MP mm-hmm. for Hartlepool amid sexual harassment allegations. Um, in something of a political Christmas for lobby hacks, though, it's triggered the first by-election of the Parliament in Peter Mandelson's former seat of Hartlepool. It's being seen as a key test of Keir Starmer's efforts to reconnect Labour with voters in the so-called Red Wall, and anything less than victory could lead to serious questions about his leadership. Let's hear Lisa Nandy's assessment of the battle ahead. But, you know, I'm somebody who represents a constituency, lives in a constituency that is in the so-called Red Wall, and I genuinely believe that people in our communities are absolutely desperate for a country in which we support and reward those people who've got us through the last most difficult year. So when they look at issues like nurses' pay, they just cannot understand why the very people who are delivering the vaccine, who are keeping us safe, who are keeping us alive. Paul, why is this by-election so important? Well, it's the first by-election of this parliament and also um, it's a kind of slight return to normal politics in a way, which is, you know, lots of us are delighted by, you know, a good old-fashioned by-election campaign. There's good, you know, They're unpredictable in many ways, um, mm. but predictable in other ways. Because, you know, there, there may well be local campaigns that um, make that take off, might be very, very specific local issues. Uh, I'd be interested to see whether or not there's a, a proper independent that runs that could peel mm. off um, votes from from a Labour candidate but I think overwhelmingly given um, the result in 2019 when Labour was way behind and Jeremy Corbyn was loathed and uh, particularly in the northeast and when uh, at a time when the party was you know nowhere near level pegging like it is now I mean it's six points behind but it was way further behind then it, it Hartlepool still elected a Labour MP despite all of that so even with the vaccine bounce, as it's called, I cannot see Labour losing this. I mean, you, you know, you know, hold that quote against me. But, you know, <laughs> but I honestly, if they do, there's something fundamentally very, very wrong. Um, it might well be just a local quirk. But if you lose this election, I mean, Labour, there's some serious questions. That's why I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. I think that... Um, there should be an in- increased majority, not a, a reduced majority. It depends on the candidate. If if Paul Williams is the candidate, then um, uh, I think that actually that could be really interesting because of his role in the NHS. Everyone, the Tories are going to pile against him all his second referendum uh, support from the past. He the his simple answer to that will obviously we be like Keir Starmer's and everyone else's, which is look that's that's done with, that's settled, we're moved on now. Um, and the most important pressing issue right now is coronavirus. Here's a guy who's actually, you know, on the front line helping out. And I think if they choose him, it'll be interesting. Um, and I would expect them to increase their majority. But, you know, uh, there is that there's still that chunk of voters who in 2019 went to the Brexit party. Now, mm. 25% of people in that in that election went to the Brexit party in that seat. And a large chunk of them, more than half of them, are Labour voters, former Labour voters. Mm-hmm. The big mistake is to assume that they're all Tory voters and somehow they can you can add that to the Tory total and the Tories are going to win. Even the Tories know that's nonsense. So um, mm-hmm. it depends on, on how uh, Labour approaches it and how 
on the front foot, Keir Starmer is. If I was Keir Starmer, I'd actually, you know, take a risk and go up there a lot and be in that seat a lot and say, look, this is how we've changed. This is why mm. we've changed. Um, not to shy away from it and not think, oh, God, this is really quite risky. Paul, you've set yourself up for a Paddy, Paddy Ashdown uh, hat-eating moment <laughs> with your bold prediction. Uh, but, Jess, anyway... Um, the Brexit party took a lot of the Labour vote in 2019. Are you worried about Richard Tice or a similar candidate start again or Brexit and, and Paul Williams, if he's the candidate, his second referendum support being a, an issue? I'm not worried about either of those things, actually, to be perfectly honest, because, I mean, maybe I'm just naturally um, not a very timid person, I suppose, is the, the best way to describe that. Um, I, I think acting with timidity in this instance would be the wrong thing. And you've we've just got to go to Hartlepool and talk about the things that the people in Hartlepool care about. Um, I, I, I'm not going to say what they are, because I think, no, nobody from Hartlepool would be conned into thinking that I know anything other than apocryphal stories about Hartlepool. Um, but I will gladly go up there and, like like Paul says, confidently uh, to campaign. You know what I found when you try negative politics that the Tories are already trying before a candidate's even been elected? It's really weird. Um, and, and actually, I don't really understand their strategy, but then... I don't understand a lot of what they do. Uh, but um, I, I think that it's, it's it's really, really dangerous when you try and go really negative um, because my uh, my uh, one of the times uh, I stood for election, in, in the three times I've stood in five years uh, in a general election, um, the, my opponent, who used to be the MP in the seat, went really, really negative and my constituents really, really hated it. They they got a bit like all right you know don't need to be that mean about her like she's 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 one of us like she, you're sort of slagging off one of your own and they don't, they don't like it and they also would prefer it if we talked about them not about us and the things we care about in Westminster um, if you were to knock the doors in Hartlepool or anywhere and say what are your views on the people's vote campaign people I bet most of them would be like oh, I don't know what's that love do you know what I mean like. We've got to be really careful about how we obsess about things in Westminster that, you know, they, they just not necessarily have that terminology. So all of this attack I've been seeing this week has been odd. Um, but now I, I, I very much hope we'll hold Hartlepool and I'll be going up with the intention of making that happen with confidence, talking about the people in Hartlepool and about the future. Yeah, Rachel, uh, we've talked about Paul Williams there. What's he all about? And is he sort of nailed on to be the Labour candidate? Who are some of the other run runners and riders? And, and what could the battle be like in that seat? Um, I think it cannot be overstated at all just how independent-minded Hartlepool is. Um, I, th I think we'll hear sort of loads and loads and loads of commentators talk about um, the Red Wall. But Hartlepool is, um, and I used to cover it as a, a the local reporter, it's, it's, like a, it's very much a law unto itself you know um, it had um for for a lot of years a directly elected mayor and um way back in 2002 it was taken by somebody called Stuart Drummond who was an independent he was elected three times and he was um he, his his job before taking the taking the the mayoralty was um he was the football club's mascot Hangus the monkey and I think that kind of just and if you look at local local government in Hartlepool over a lot of years, there's a big trend towards independence. And I think um, 
Lib would do well to sort of as as but everyone here has talked about about getting really stuck in and being scrappy about it because I think sort of Teesiders generally really appreciate that. Mm. Um, when you look at sort of what happened at the last election, uh, the Brexit party took almost as many votes as the Conservative party and Labour just say squeaked it. So I think it'll be, I think it'll be really, really tough. And in terms of, in terms of Paul Williams, uh, he's, he's a doctor, which um, during the coronavirus crisis might, might, be a big plus for the Labour Party. Mm. He's been doing shifts at the COVID clinic at Hartlepool Hospital. Um, and we've mentioned again this, the Boris Johnson's vaccine bounce that he's um, that's been talked about a lot as but a big plus for the Conservatives at the local elections. But, but up there, sort of barely anyone under the age of 50 has had the vaccine yet at all. Um, so I don't know how much a candidate like Paul Williams would would work given the vaccine delays we're now about to expect but um going very hard on the on how on the government's handling of COVID-19 is also a big risk for Labour because uh, sort of a lot of research would show that support for the governing party goes up during big crises like this um in terms of sort of the other people that I've heard talked about for as, as the Labour candidate uh Laura Pidcock has been mentioned she obviously lost Northwest Durham at the the last election, but she's um, uh, she, she's very very you know she's she would be a very very like I say scrappy candidate. And uh, the other person that's been um, mentioned is uh, Tom Blenkinsop, who's the former. Um, He's Star. the definition of scrappy. He's <laughs> the definition of scrappy. Yeah. Um, I say that in total love of Tom Blenkinsop, but he is the definition of scrappy. Um, and and. Um, in, in terms of who would be the Conservative candidates, very little's been said about that yet. I know, I know. In terms of the sort of um, not the Brexit Party, but the, the, the Reform Party now, as they, as, as they are, Richard Tice is considering whether he would stand again. Um, at the last election, they had, uh, the Conservatives had a very local candidate, uh, uh, a Stockton Council guy called um, Stephen Horton. But I don't know. Um, I don't know whether the Conservatives might actually want somebody with a, a bigger national profile or if they would want to, again, pick out somebody local. I think one, one other thing I would say um, is that it's hard to also overstate how popular um, the Conservatives mayoral, um, reg regional mayor candidate for um, the, the Tees Valley area, Ben Houghton is. Um, and they've had a lot of very positive news about jobs for, um, for Teesside over the last, last few months. Um, which would, would, is also something people should factor in when talking about the seat, I think. Yeah, yeah, the government's pumping loads of money into Teesside. Did you think that's going to have a factor? Have a oh, massively, play? yeah. Sorry, sorry. Do you think? Do you honestly think that? Um, I think... I, somebody whose region yeah. has money pumped into it as well, mainly because if you've got a Tory mayor, uh, they want to keep it that way just before an election, so there's a lot of port barrels that go around. Um, so, but I don't think that people feel it yet, any of that money. Like, we've got the Treasury moving to Wolverhampton. Honestly, I can't wait. Um, but um, the, the, you know, I don't, people, average people on the streets in my constituency don't think, like, Whitehall's really investing in us. Like, that's just like, it's just not, it's not a thing that people actually think. They think, God, I can't get a copper to come. Like, you know, when, when something wrong, I, I just, I, I wonder sometimes about all these big infrastructure things, unless they've actually created the jobs that people are in yet. And most people are 
lots of people are still on furlough and I just don't know if that it's quick enough the time for the by-election isn't enough yeah that's an interesting point um but with that I think it's time for the quiz Ooh. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to know anything. I'll tell you that now. <laughs> and amid uh, Tory backbench uproar at the integrated review suggesting the UK could deepen its trade links with China, this week's edition is all on foreign policy. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, so just shout the answer if you know it. Uh, David could it not have been on Hartlepool? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would have been better. <laughs> and there's only one question to ask about Hartlepool and it's about the monkey, isn't it? But anyway, let's carry on. Uh, question number one. Uh, David Cameron was sharply criticised in 2010 after describing the UK as the junior partner in what? The China-UK relations. Rachel, what were you saying? I thought it was, I thought it was the special relationship, was it? Yes, yeah. that's oh. the right answer. Yes. Uh, he also said that the UK was the junior partner in the Second World War. Uh, when the US <laughs> got involved. Yeah, which didn't go down very Imagine well. Imagine if a Labour person said that now. Yeah. It would literally, the Tories would wear masks on their face with it written on. <laughs> We'd have to be reminded of it every 15 seconds. There'd be a statue built with somebody holding it. Uh, question number two. In which uh, state or nation were children named Tony Blair or Tony in honour of the British PM? Possible. Yes, well done, Paul. Uh, Blair, Blair got the UK involved in the 1999 NATO air campaign, actually played a key role against Yugoslavia in the Kosovan war and is seen by Kosovan Albanians as a hero. Yeah, um, I know. I've met some Tony Blairs. And it's spelled T-O-N-I-B-L-E-R. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony Blair. I've met some. Tony Blair. Nice. I've met some um, Rwandans as well who were fairly keen. All right. <laughs> fairly keen. Nice. Uh, final question. It's between Paul and Rachel for the win. Uh, Boris Johnson is famous for his foreign affairs, uh, among other gaffes, but he was given a rap on the knuckles from Theresa May for comparing which foreign leader to a Nazi dishing out punishment beatings. Oh, was that uh, Francois Hollande? Well done, Paul. Yes. My God. You've Can won you the quiz. Francois Hollande, he doesn't seem like he's good feature enough to <laughs> be described. He's a lover, not a fighter, that's for sure. Do you know what I mean? Like, he doesn't see, he seems a mild mannered sort, <laughs> Francois Hollande. Didn't he go out with Segaline Royale as well? She was the one who never made it. And then he um, then he went out with that young actress, what's she called? Gaillet, Juliette Gaillet, or whatever. But anyway, oh, he was, he Francois was, Hollande. They were on a scooter together, weren't they? Famous photo. But, yeah. Um, he, was, he was caught having an affair, wasn't he? And then came here for a press conference with the PM and Chris Hope from The Telegraph asked him, do you wish uh, your mistress was here? Um, Which was slightly odd. <laughs> I mean, that's just... What did he say? <laughs> we... I think it was a Gallic shrug. <laughs> Oh, perfect. Well, with the Gallic shrug, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review. And get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. Uh, we'll just leave you with Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, offering some strange moral support to the Queen during this difficult moment for the royal family. All I will say 
is God save our gracious Queen, long live our noble Queen, God save the Queen. Send her victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us, God save the Queen. O Lord our God arise, scatter her enemies and let them fall, frustrate their knavish tricks, confound their politics, on thee our hopes we fix, God save us all. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.